Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. series on toxic Christianity, which will make some of you very happy, right? Uh, We're going to stop short of continuing this for all time, uh, which means that for some of us, we feel relieved because we haven't seen ourselves in toxic Christianity, right? And for others of us, we're like, oh, um, this has been six weeks of persecution, right? So we want to try to wrap this up today, and we're going to end on one of the things that happens sometimes in Christianity because it becomes part of how we are expressing ourselves culturally rather than necessarily what we feel or know in our heart of hearts. And that is messianic complex, the soul-saving Christian. Now, sometimes this has a larger presence in other denominations, and certainly there are a number of Christian communities that kind of talk in those terms right? Perhaps you've heard things like this. How many souls have you saved? When did you come to Jesus? What day were you saved? Now, growing up, I grew up Methodist because my dad was born and raised in the Methodist church. And so we grew up Methodist, and that was just not part of our vernacular. Those weren't things that we said. However, my mother, God love her, grew up in the Southern Baptist church. And these were questions and words she heard a lot which is probably why I never heard them growing up. They were not things that she wanted us to continue. However, I have had my opportunity throughout my time as clergy to attend clergy events that are not a part of the United Methodist Church. And a lot of them are worship conferences. And when you go to a worship conference, oftentimes it's more of the Baptist flavor, uh, which means that they're very impressive and, and they're very moving and impactful. But it never fails that certain things happen when I go to a non-Methodist clergy event. The first is this, so you're the pastor's wife. No, I'm a pastor. Oh, so you're the pastor of something and then there's a senior pastor. Nope, I'm the senior pastor. Okay, that gets awkward real quick. Wait, wait, what, wait, what? (laughs) You're a woman in ministry? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Isn't that exciting? And they're like, no, it's not. So then the next thing that usually happens is, if I'm talking to somebody who is clergy, they'll say, well, how many souls have you saved? And this is where, more often than should, I get very snarky, which is one of my non-spiritual gifts that I default to when I'm confronted in things like this. And when somebody asks me, how many souls have you saved? None. I'm not Jesus. And usually, I'm talking to a male colleague, and I'm like, you know, that's one of the great things about being female clergy. I don't wake up in the morning and see Jesus in the mirror. If I wake up in the morning and see a Judean Jew who's masculine and much darker than myself, you all need to carefully have me committed. I am not well. Uh, No, I don't wake up with, with that. That's just not something that I think of. I'm very aware of the fact that I am not Jesus, and I don't save souls. That's not my job. That's not how I understand my ministry anyway. I'm not here to save souls. Jesus did that when Jesus died on the cross, almost 2,000 years before I was ever a twinkle in my dad's eye. That's just not how that works. 
And then that usually frustrates them because sometimes I have colleagues that actually talk in those terms. I've brought 5,000 people to Jesus. Oh, okay. And how many of them stayed with Jesus? See, that's where I get really, I gotta work on that snark. <laughs> it's really not good. It's really not good. It's amusing, it's not good. Uh, so the next thing that sometimes happens is, okay, if they decide to continue this, because I'm still standing there smiling, is they'll say, well, when were you saved? And they're looking for a date, right? They're looking for a specific date. They're actually looking for a date on a calendar. November 26, 1962, which would be miraculous because I wasn't even born, right? What is this? And they're like, they're looking for a date. It was a Tuesday. I, I don't know. I don't know what day it was. Actually, I do know what day it is. Do you know what day I was saved? Good Friday. That's the day I was saved. I was saved on a Friday in Jerusalem long before I ever existed. God chose to offer me grace before the country of which I am a citizen ever existed, before I was born, before I did my first sin, God made sure that I could be saved. And because I am a Methodist, to me, that is the embodiment of what we call provenient grace, that first movement of God's grace where God decides for reasons that are unfathomable to people that God is going to love us and move toward us even as we have already begun to move away from God. That God chooses to give us faith as a gift that we might embrace that same grace on the cross. And so to me, I don't think that I am saving souls Jesus does that. Jesus had to save mine. I don't think that there was a day where suddenly it clicked for me and I was the best Christian that I could ever be, once saved, always saved. I, that's just not, that's not how I understand God's grace. I do understand God's grace as I love you so much and I know you're going to mess up that I am going to try to put some things in place so that you can realize this and come back. Come home. Come home to me. And that's how I understand my salvation. And John the Baptist, as we lovingly refer to him, was trying to show people that grace. He was trying to offer them a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But of course, some people show up because what he's doing is obviously working in the sense that it's impactful and people are coming. People keep coming to him at the River Jordan and they're engaging in this new way of doing a mikvah, which is a ritual bath in Judaism, and they're allowing him to do this to them, to grant them a baptism of forgiveness for the repentance of sin. And they're trying to figure out who is this guy and what is he doing? So our text says that the priests and the Levites had come. And this is the Sadducees in the Bible. These are the very people that are running the temple and the sacrificial system in Jerusalem. These are some very well-respected and knowledgeable people. And they come out, and they're like, who are you, right? They want to see his card. Show us some identification, sir. Who are you? What in the world are you doing out here? And John is very honest. I love how he started with what the book of Colossians said that we read in our gathering liturgy, humility. He starts with who he is not. I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. And who are you? Who am I? I am a voice crying out from the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. Make it straight. Because some of us will pile all kinds of obstacles and walls in front of us. Right? Sin will do that. It will create a barrier between you and God. And Jesus came to tear down that barrier so that it would no longer be there. And some of us 
will choose a path that looks much more like this than like this. Because I've had enough math to know that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Make straight. But of course, maybe like me, you've known what it's like to go like this, right? And you're like, Jesus will catch up, come on. I'm over here. But the point that we're supposed to be doing is making straight our path, right? Cutting out the things that distract us or actually threaten to derail us. We're supposed to be finding ways to streamline our connection with Christ and our journey toward the kingdom to come. But so often, we make things more complicated. And John was crying out going, hey, stop. Make it straight. And all of that stuff that we do to ourselves, those thoughts and those feelings and those ways of being in the world that create the obstacles and the barriers and make us wander all over the place rather than walking straight, those things, John said, let me give you an experience. Let me pour water over you. Let you rise up out of the water and feel grace washing over you, setting you free from all of that stuff that you carried into the Jordan, all of your failures and your mistakes, all your willful disobedience, which we call sin, all of that stuff, your guilt, Leave it here and step out onto the shore clean and new and try again. And he was giving them that experience. And he's very humble about it. I mean, they had come and in just one word, he could have taken more authority than he was supposed to have, right? Are you the Messiah? No. There were a lot of things the Messiah is going to have to do that I'm not sure John actually wanted to do or that he could have done, let's be honest. And that would have not ended very well. Are you Elijah? Now, they're asking that because those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament account of Elijah know that he didn't die. He was taken in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire up to heaven, which means he's technically available to come back, right? He went up, he could come back. He didn't die. He's technically still in play. And so they were waiting. Is he going to come back? You know, oftentimes if you go to a Seder, uh, Passover Seder with Jews, you'll find there's an empty chair and you'll be like, who's that for? And they're like, that's for Elijah because he's coming back, which is also fun at a dinner party or if you go somewhere and somebody's like, is anybody sitting here? And you're like, yes, Elijah. He'll be along, right? So that's why they ask him if he's Elijah. And then they ask him, are you the prophet? Are you a prophet? Well, a lot of times in Christianity, we think of John as a prophet, but John, in great humility, does not think of himself as a prophet. He thinks of himself as a vessel who was serving God. I'm serving. And in fact, I'm so in gear with what I'm supposed to be doing that I know what is out of my reach and out of my lane. And then he does something that most of us as Christians struggle sometimes to do. He gives the glory to God. There is one coming from among you that you do not know. He's proclaiming that Jesus is, in fact, one of the Jewish people. And he says, you don't know him, but he is coming, and I am not worthy to untie his sandals. He is so incredible. He is the Messiah. He is the embodiment of that same prophetic ministry that Elijah and the other prophets had. He is going to bring it to fruition, and he is coming. And I know enough to know that I am not him, but I serve him. Now, most of the time, if you were reading along in your own Bible or following along in the Pew Bible, you'll see that that section kind of ends at verse 28. This took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing, period, new paragraph. But I went a little further because I think the next 
verse actually ties the whole thing together. It could just be John was confronted about what he was doing and it happened here, period, the end, moving along. But if we go to the next verse, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only did he confess that he was not the Messiah, but then when he saw the Messiah, he gave glory to the Messiah and spoke outwardly so that others would know, this is your Lord. And he is here to take away the sins of the world. And so he gave that glory not just to Jesus, but he made it accessible for people. People who just couldn't do the sacrificial system anymore. People who just, it didn't resonate. You know, the, the relationship that they wanted with God and that God clearly wanted with them just seemed too far off or too convoluted and they just couldn't get there. And for one moment, John brought it closer. He helped them bridge the gaps so that they could experience God's grace because sometimes God's grace is not something you can articulate. Right? If it was easy, then we'd all be ordained, because that ain't easy to articulate. It's not easy. And to try to explain how you yourself have experienced God's grace and what it might look like, feel like, and be for other people is not easy to talk about. And John gave people something that is bigger than words. He gave them an experience. You know, it's that thing that makes us say to one another, you know, you just had to be there. I can't even tell you. I don't even have pictures. You had to be there. And that's what he gave them. He gave them something that would never be taken away. Because sometimes we forget our words. Sometimes our minds rob us of our memories. But that spiritual encounter can never be taken from you. It is yours forever. And that's what he was doing for people. But when you look at the messianic complex in the church, or you look at a soul-saving Christian, what you find is that most of these people are not sociopaths. They don't get up and they're like, I want everybody to be manipulated by how I see them. That's not how that works. In fact, most people are truly trying to be good people. I believe that. I believe most people want to be good. The extent to which they want to be good is what's negotiable, but they want to be good, right? Most of us don't wake up in the morning and like, how can I be evil today? That's just not how that works. And if you know somebody like that, we'll pray for them. But really, we don't, we don't assume that that's what's going on because we don't really want to assume that anybody thinks we get up in the morning and we want to be evil. Right? So we try to grant people some grace in that. But what I discovered is that sometimes if you're not careful, that mindset that you have to be all and do all, whether you think you're Jesus or not, infects us. It's toxic. It makes us sick. It will literally make you sick. So this past week, I journeyed down to North Carolina and there with 23 other clergy from our jurisdictional conference in the southeast of the United States, I gathered with them and we were doing some leadership training at the Center for Creative Leadership. And we took all kinds of different tests and completed all these different metrics so that we could have some insight into ourselves, you know, what you do well, but also what you need to perfect and places where you can grow and learn so that you can day by day be a better Christian and a better leader than you were before. And that's great because we believe we're going on to perfection, not just personally, but professionally. And so gathered there with them and uh, they affirmed some things like, I'm an extreme extrovert. <laughs> Somebody was like, I need to write that down. I was like, write it down. And I'll come and sit with you for two hours and we'll talk about it. All right? Write it down. 
Yeah, I'm an extreme extrovert. There you go. Who knew? <laughs> but it also showed us some other things, right? And we're not all the same. There were 24 different clergy in that room, but we were not all the same. You had two of us from Virginia. You had a lot of people from North Carolina because we were in North Carolina. There were a lot of people from Florida because Florida is a big place. And then we had um, other groups of people from South Carolina and Georgia. And we're all gathered in this place together, and we're all very different people. But do you know the one thing we all tested very high on? We overcommit ourselves. We overcommit ourselves. And we do that for different reasons, you know. But overcommitment means that we take on more than we should. And at our worst, we take on more than we could ever do. And what usually happens is that as you're in a leadership position in the church, you can kind of head to this fork in the road. And the fork in the road is you're going to overcommit or you're going to get messianic complex, right? I have to do this. Nobody else can do this. Who else can do this? I have to clearly do it. Versus the other one, which hopefully says, you know what? It has to be done. It's for the glory of God. It's for the good of people, and it has to be done. And if nobody's going to step up and do it, then I will do it because it's got to be done. And next thing you know, you do that, and you do that, and you're burned out. There's nothing left. You've incinerated everything. Have you ever watched a fire go out, right? It's like fire, and then fizzles, right? And there's nothing even to light anymore. That's why you have to keep adding things to a fire. Right? I've been hanging around with Boy Scouts, can you tell? And that's what happens. You have to feed a fire, or it burns out. It consumes itself until there's nothing left. Now, that's not usually the vision of ministry that we have. I, I don't think many of you come to church to see if I light myself on fire and burn out today. And if you do, we'll talk about that later. But what you really want is to be in ministry for a long time, right? This isn't a tent ministry. We're kind of planted here. We have walls and carpeting, right? We've invested in this place because we believe that this church, this body of Christ is going to be here. And so we have to invest in each other. And what the person that was leading that session for us that day said to a bunch of people who are used to leading is, you all stink at time management. Clergy love to hear that, by the way. That really warms our hearts. When you tell us that we're not good at time management, what we think is that we're not productive, that we're not fruitful. Because we've read the scriptures, we know that God has some very clear expectations for us. Jesus even says, you're not to bear tenfold, 20-fold, 50-fold. You are to bear fruit 100-fold. That's a high number to my siblings in Christ. That's a high expectation. Can you imagine getting 100% on every test you ever took? That's hard. That is really hard. And just the struggle, the endeavor could burn you out. Forget trying to repeat it and replicate it. Right? It's, it's exhausting. And so we're aware of that, and we're all in, obviously. You wouldn't become Methodist clergy and agree to get possibly moved every single year if you weren't all in. But are we all in to the point that we destroy ourselves? Is that what we want? Because at the end of that moment when they shared that, that one thing we really have all in common, because we were from all different demographics, different races, different genders, different geographical areas, different church contexts. We're very all different. It's amazing how different 24 clergy can be. But the one thing that is not being amplified in our lives is that we can't do it all, and we know that it will destroy us, 
Physically, it'll deteriorate our health. Mentally, it will destroy us. Spiritually, it can actually rob you of your spirit and your faith. And what we're forgetting is that by trying to do that, we are depriving the glory from this one up here. Because Christ came that we might live. Christ came that we might find each other and find the body of Christ. If it was all about one person, then Jesus would have picked one apostle and focused all his effort and his energy into that one who then, after Jesus ascended, would do the same with the next and the next. Instead, Jesus was like one to twelve. And then when you read the book of Acts, we go from twelve to thousands. It is not about the one, unless that one is Jesus Christ. And so we struggle with this in the church, right? And one of the things that we found each other saying as we were talking about that, you know, because after they dropped that bomb, we're like, oh, that's not good. And then as we were talking afterwards, we started to say things like, well, who's going to do it? You know, like, we, need, we need people to, like, help. We need people to, like, you know, step up and step in. And the reality is, yes, we do. Now, there are other churches with other models, but the reality is that the one constancy in the church outside of God in the United Methodist Church is you. I am not the constancy in this church. I came to this church five years ago, and one way or another, I will leave this church. I will either die, I will retire, or I will itinerate. One of those will happen. I hope not in that order. <laughs> but one of those things will happen. And the best part is that I know that long after I am gone, you will be here. Because what really makes this church work, what really allows this body of Christ to have an impact in Crozet and far beyond is not me. It is you. You are the ones who do things that I cannot do and should not do. You do not want me directing the choir. You do not want me playing your music. I can't keep a beat. That's not a good idea. You will sing Amazing Grace three times, we'll call it a day, and you'll come back next week and we'll do the same thing. And it'll all be a cappella because that's all we got. And that'll be cool for like a week. And then you'll be like, somebody needs to help Sarah because this is not sustainable. Right? But somebody needs to help Sarah because there are other things that are not sustainable. There are other things that I should not do. You know, sometimes it's about figuring out how to endure and produce the fruitfulness at the end, right? If Jesus expects us to be 100-fold fruitful, then you have to figure it out. You can't be like, I'm really good at something here, but I can't, like, figure out how to put the pieces together or where I belong. The one I came up with is, you know, you can't just be really awesome at preheating the oven, right? you got to prep something, put it in the oven, and hopefully bake it or cook it, and then bring it out, and it tastes good, and it doesn't kill anybody, right? Those are parts of it. You can't be like, I nailed preheating, peace out. That's not going to work. <laughs> That's not how the church works. Right? And the hard thing for us to remember is that even though this time and this space feels like one of the crucial anchors of our lives, it feels so important and it's so wonderful to, to, to be here, whether you know, people are streaming with us this morning or whether you're here in the pews, that this does feel like a central piece of our faith. And it is. This is a central piece of who I understand myself to be in the body of Christ. But this is not the beginning and the end. Worship is meant to be a place where we are refueled. Right? And if we have spent all week 
bearing burdens and struggling, then this is the place where we come and we turn it over to God. And we let that grace wash over us and give us the strength and the courage and the conviction to do something else this week. You know, this is not the only place that you should ever dwell in the church. These pews are probably intentionally not that comfortable so that you can't just dwell in here. Right? You can't. And here's the, here's the thing. These pews are meant to be a place of rest. They're meant to be a place where we come into the church and we find our rest if we have been going so strong all week. A place where we know that we are actually resting in God's hand here. And then, as our choir so beautifully sang, we're looking for God to raise us up on eagle's wings and bear us in the week ahead. That's what should happen here. But the reality is that across denominations, all across this beautiful country of ours, 10% of the people that occupy the pew will be somewhere else in the church that next week. Only 10%. That's not the metric that Christ gave us. And here's the other thing. You, each and every one of you, are precious. You have things that no one else has in your particular flavor, point of view, experience, or just your way of being. So I'm going to invite you to do a little exercise with me. And I don't do this very often, so I hope and pray you'll grant me grace and humor me in this. But I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. And in your mind's eye, try to picture the perfect church. A church where everyone feels welcome. A church where the worship is powerful. A church where the missions and ministries are truly changing things right outside that church, in its community, and well beyond. Picture that church. Now draw a little closer to that church. Move a little further in your mind's eye. What kind of things are people doing in that church? How are they serving? How are they leading? What kind of gifts and graces do they bring to make that church as effective and powerful and joyful as it is? Now open your eyes. Could you see it? Even if it wasn't really clear, could you kind of see like a blurry, this is the church? And you start to look a little closer. And the question that the Holy Spirit poses us today is, where would you be in that church? Where would you be serving? And for some of you, where would you be leading? Because you are gifted in leadership. Your passion and your desire to see something made manifest in this world is a strength of leadership. Where would you be? And as your pastor, are you there now? Why not? Because we all have a place in the church. And that place is not just as a pew warmer. That place is a place where we bring what we have at every facet of our lives. Every generation has a purpose in the church. And what are we doing? For some of us, it's we are in the trenches. We are overseeing missions and ministries. We are involved in them. When you look at what 
the passion and the commitment of some of our people do. It allows our preschool, even in the midst of the most horrible pandem pandemic that multiple generations have ever seen, to stay open and to thrive and to equip children, not just to go to kindergarten, but to experience God's love and embrace the tenets of Christianity. That they are loved and they can be forgiven. And that Christ loves them no matter where they go that they remain children of God. Or the people who are part of our ministries of children's worship and vacation Bible school, those people, God love them, who pour themselves out into those ministries. Because those are the ministries that are changing the world at a ground level. So many times we look at the world and we see instances where human sin has gotten so out of control my heart dies within me every time I hear or read a news story about a child or a teenager who have been bullied so relentlessly and mercilessly that they have committed suicide. That just tears me in two. And yet, because of the children's ministry we have here, I have seen children say to each other, you know, that's not very nice. Let's not do that to each other. I want to be your friend. I have seen them resist the human sinfulness of bullying and embrace the Christ-likeness of inclusion and forgiveness and welcoming. And they are learning it and they're perfecting it. And thank God, because I don't know what this world would be like if we continue down the path that we are on. But they are. They are seeing things differently. And maybe one day when I'm at my most vintage, I'll be able to look back and I'll be able to trace where your faith and your service in the name of Jesus Christ has made this world so much better than it was when I came into it. But that is our mission. And John saw what he had to do in that. You know, John never calls himself the Baptist. That's not a name he claims. And actually, if you want to get really kind of creepy about it, in the Gospel account of John, which isn't written by John the Baptist, but... In the Gospel account of John, he never actually baptizes Jesus. Never actually does it. But what does John do? John takes a group of people who need to experience God's forgiveness and God's grace, and he gives it to them. He gives them that baptism. And because of that, he has started to make straight the way of the Lord so that when Jesus comes, he is able to do the things that he needs to do, and people are able to receive it. They have had a glimpse, a taste, a touch of God's love and grace, and they want more. And when they encounter Jesus and the way that he feeds, the way that he heals, the way that he accepts and embraces other people, they can fall right into his arms of grace. Because John did his part. And if John hadn't done that, how many fewer people would ever have embraced what Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry? And if you follow that down the line, how many of us would not be here? At the end of our earthly lives, if we look back at what we've accomplished, and we are a people of legacy, we like to think about what our legacy will be, how will people remember us, what will they say at my funeral. These are things that we think about at some point in our life. 
And when we do this, what we need to realize is that people remember the ways in which we touched their lives. They remember the ways in which we were compassionate when no one was. They remember when we loved them even though we didn't have to. They remember when we were there with them at those moments when it seemed like nobody else really wanted to be with us. And if I look back over my faith life now, I can pinpoint people. People who were with me during these profound moments. Like Jane. Jane was a youth worker in my church. And Jane had no training in Christianity. Jane, I'm not even sure Jane felt trained for youth because she had two really young kids in elementary school. I don't think Jane felt equipped. But for some unknown reason, Jane found herself, and not her husband, just Jane, found herself as one of our youth workers. And I can remember her being very quiet in the beginning. And then she would, you know, when she had something to say, it was like, ooh, that's good. She didn't have a lot to say, but when she said, it, it said a lot. And so she did, and I remember her very clearly. I remember her being there on the retreats that we went on. I remember her being next to us when we did mission work. I remember her being there in the congregation when I preached my first sermon. I remember that. I don't even remember Jane's last name, but I remember Jane. And I know that she changed me that she made a difference for me. And there are others. You can look back and you can see others who have changed just little bits, right? Little bits. They help to straighten the way just a little bit. But everyone makes a difference. And in the church, we are called to be those people. It's not one person. United Methodism is not a cult of personality. It is not. I am here because people just like you shaped my life. I am here because people just like you allowed me to be a child in a church, allowed me to explore being a youth in the church, it allowed me to explore my spiritual gifts that were emerging and didn't go, that was horrible and your theology's wonky. Instead, they were like, that's great, try again. Try again. How can you get better next time? And there is somebody in this world that needs to hear that from you. There is somebody in this world that needs to experience Christ in you. And when we embrace that same spirit of humility and glory to God that John the Baptist offered, then we are truly taking our rightful place. We're not all called to be shepherds, but we are all called to be bricklayers. We are called to lay this path and to help people step on it with surety and to recognize that we are not going to build them a path that leads them astray. We are going to streamline their journey to Christ in the kingdom to come. And when we choose to bring our voice, our way of being, our gifts, then that is when we are truly starting to point people back to the cross. That's it. And all of us have a place there. Just like that cross is infinite number of splinters that when they came together, they made the greatest portal to grace that the world has ever known. But it was only when those splinters allowed themselves to coalesce into the cross that the world was blessed.
will we allow ourselves to be joined together into the body of Christ in a way that, like the cross, will change the future for people? And what does that look like? And where are you in that church? These are questions I'm asking myself. And I hope and I pray that you will ask them with me. You'll ask them of me. You'll ask them of yourselves. So that tomorrow we are better than we were today. And a year from now we will be doing things that we never thought that we could do. But that God knew all along would bless this world. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.